So, we want you to both harden your resolve to believe what you're doing, not just to be doing it, and to, number two, explain why you have it. Why you have it. And in all of this, I always want to give this disclaimer, we do not believe we have the final word. I don't believe I have the final word from the scriptures on this, nor do I think I have led by perfect example, nor has this church been the ideal perfect example. We're not presenting ourselves as the correct church. We're not doing that. We're speaking to you as members of this church or members of the Christian community and saying, this is why we've done what we've done. If it's true according to scriptures, then let's embrace it. And if it's true from the scriptures and it's worth preserving, let's know how to talk about it. And to do so with biblical conviction and gracious and seasoned speech. Those are things that are hard to come by in the days that we're in. So may we speak as Christians even while we may not hold the majority view. Uh, I was optimistic about all of this earlier on in two ways. Number one, that by this time, this is, I don't know when I would have thought this, but I was hoping that by now we wouldn't be talking about this anymore. That has not been the Lord's plan for us. He has decided that we need to still be talking about this and dealing with this. Uh, I trust that the Lord is sovereign in that. So I was optimistic that this would just not be an issue anymore by now. I gave up that view some months ago, but nonetheless, I at one point believed it. Number two, my optimism was uh, in that I thought that a mere quiet example would be enough in terms of leading and accomplishing those first two goals, to harden your conviction and to help you explain it. Mere example does not achieve those things. We are commanded to teach and preach the truth. And as we saw last week, when you have ignorant zeal, the solution is true teaching. So we, we do need now to, uh, I, at least I feel convicted that I want to just better prepare you. I want to better prepare you with words, scriptures, exhortations, and even strategies for dealing with the world that we're living in. We can't change the world we're living in by mere wish. What we can do is find out how the scriptures would command us to live in that world and to trust God with the prevailing results. And so, in terms of shattering my optimism, the reach of the civil government has increasingly increased, uh, unceasingly increased, and so we need to know how to live and to give an answer for living in these extraordinary times. I avoided another word that you've heard more often than that. Uh, and so this is to come to the topic of what we're talking about today. So we believe as a church that in the final analysis for explaining the difference between particularly Christians right now, I wouldn't say between Christians and the world, I would say the difference primarily between Christians right now, because the church is divided, make no mistake about it. We're not going to pretend that we're all, uh, you know, sitting around with flower crowns on singing Kumbaya. The church is divided right now, and nobody takes delight in that. But I believe, and I could be wrong, and that come to Bible study and tell me I'm wrong if you think so. In the final analysis for explaining the difference between Christians, I would say is the idea, the concept of authority. That is, who has the final say in matters of life on this earth? 
So I pray that this is clear. I pray that the scriptures illuminate this for you and help you at least, if you don't agree, better understand where we're coming from as a church and whether or not it's biblical. So Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 4, reads, and this is a lengthy passage, and by the way, I'm so glad your kids are here. They're all doing amazing, by the way, but uh, don't feel self-conscious about children being here. Uh, We've been praying for them, that their hearts are open to the word as well. I just wanted to make that again clear. Um, It's a blessing to have the kids. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be taken before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy God. See, that's how a pagan talks. You ever heard a non-Christian talk about Christian things and they don't know what to say? They don't know our language? So in him was the spirit of the holy gods. Well, of course, we know that's the spirit of Yahweh in Daniel. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, And then no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to me at the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head, and I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots on the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man's to that of a beast. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end of that which is living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets it over the lowliest of men. That's a key key verse in our passage. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able... For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream, O lord, he said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, I wish this was about your enemies. But some bad news is coming for uh, for Nebuchadnezzar. 
The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, that its reach was above heaven and visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king. The tree is you, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and, and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because this king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. <clears throat> it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord my king, that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree. Because your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From that time that you know that heaven rules. That's a sweet line. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Here's my advice, Nebuchadnezzar. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there might be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Great uh, of Babylon. And the king answered and said, uh, it says he answered. Like nobody asked. You ever seen that meme where it's like nobody? You know, my brother-in-law. It's like something crazy or whatever. Sorry, not my brother-in-law. It's like nobody. King Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't my kingdom amazing? It's like he answered himself. He answered his own alter ego. Just this guy's a, a bizarre character up until this point. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Ooh. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, kind of like thunder. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to him who he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar and he was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. <clears throat> Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a story. This magnificent king is strolling, flourishing in his palace. And he has a dream and he is troubled. And he inquires and it's a dream about his fall. And then a year later, he forgets about that and he's talking to himself on the roof and is talking about how great he is. And that triggers the Lord's prophecy. And he falls. And in the wilderness, he cries out to God and God restores him. The first train stop, the first whistle stop in this sermon is God, Nebuchadnezzar, and dominion. Dominion is a sort of a word I'm going to use interchangeably with authority. Dominion is defined as control or the exercise of control. Very simple. Some might say it is real authority. Dominion is real authority. That is the power to do what one chooses. Authority just simply means the power to do what one chooses. So a powerful king with a vast kingdom or dominion is flourishing. And he learns that his kingdom will be cut down. He will be cut down and sent into the wilderness, humiliated and stripped of all his majesty. And again, a year later, he's wandering on the palace promenade and says, you know, I was just thinking, Nebi, isn't this kingdom glorious? For my glory, my majesty, isn't my dominion spectacular? And while the words were pouring out of his mouth, God said, now is the time for your dream to come true. The problem is, in, 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 the way God evaluated it was that he, a human king, a man, <clears throat> had, had, had declared himself as the focal point of his kingdom, as the focal point of his achievement. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's mistake was not having power or splendor. It was making himself the focal point of that splendor. It was making himself the point, oh, this is to exalt me. And he became a wandering madman with hair like eagle's feathers. And so God intervenes in Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He drives away not only his glory, but his sanity. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was out in the field eating grass because he lost his mind. Not because he was chained to a pasture. He literally lost his mind. His sanity was gone. And at the end of seven periods, I don't know if it's seven months, seven weeks, it wasn't seven days because hair doesn't grow that fast. Might have been seven years. He turns his eyes to heaven. And I'm just going to reread his confession. He says of the Lord, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Here's the definition of, of power and authority. He does according to his will. 
If you've been with us through Romans, you know that this is true. We've been talking about God does according to his will. He doesn't do according to our will. He doesn't respond to what we want or what we do. He acts in accordance with his will. And not only does he not only just see the future, Isaiah says he plans the future. God does according to his will. Nebuchadnezzar accepts this and confesses it. And at that time, my reason returned to me. Folks, Christianity, faith in God, is the only sane way to live. If you think things are getting crazy in the culture, the only way to explain it is godlessness. Godlessness, even if it is not within the individual, can help restrain people in sanity, like within the realm of sanity. It's a helpful and and gracious restraint. And my majesty and my splendor will return to me. So after his ordeal, his majesty actually increases. You would think, in our reasoning, God would say, well, you really messed up with the glory the first time. So glory is the problem. Majesty and wealth and dominion are the problem here, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to strip you down and maybe just give you like two cars instead of the ten car garage. Maybe then you won't be so tempted by pride, but we know that pride comes from the inside. It doesn't come from how much wealth you have. The difference after the ordeal is verse 37. His kingdom actually grows. His splendor grows. Verse 37 says, Now I praise and extol the king. What the, the difference is that Nebuchadnezzar now submitted his king to the, his kingdom to the greater kingdom. He now saw his kingdom in the context of a greater kingdom. That's what changed in Nebuchadnezzar. The difference is that now he will rule under the dominion of a higher authority. He no longer saw his majesty as the great majesty, but God's. He acknowledged the true sovereign, the one who has true dominion, not only over his own kingdom, but over the whole earth. And so God commanded this pagan king to recognize and to rule in accordance with his dominion. Folks, if you think separation of church and state means the separation of society and Christianity, we would be wrong. We would not be reading our Bibles correctly. All kings are commanded to rule under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might think, well, that's an Old Testament passage and God did a lot of things and that was a theocracy and etc., etc. Well, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. Second of all, Acts chapter 12, we see Herod, when he comes out, Herod was angry with the people. This is New Testament. Uh, and they came to him with one, of co- one accord and they, brought, uh, they persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's uh, country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oracle to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod in the New Testament was struck down dead for failing to acknowledge the God who was higher than him. So lest we be caught in the trap that that's an Old Testament story for only Old Testament saints. It is all authoritative for us. And so I want to talk just briefly about authority in the world. Authority is a natural structure. It exists and permeates our world. It's like air. It's everywhere. 
You can't get rid of it. You cannot avoid it. It is a natural structure that is built into the world just like atoms, nuclei, electrons. It, it just is, it's part of how the world works. It's a structure, like we said a couple years ago, in the same way that finance is a structure. Uh, social relationships are structures. Justice is a structure. Art and aesthetics is a structure. The question is not whether or not these structures exist, it's whether or not they are being used and pointed in the direction of God's glory. So Nebuchadnezzar is a king, just like many more were judges, magistrates. There are rules for homes, schools, marketplaces, and all of these relationships assume a hierarchy or an authority structure. That's how they operate, otherwise everything is literally chaos. There are two types of authority. Two types of dominion. They exist in two degrees. There is ultimate authority, and there is derived authority. Derived authority, which means secondary, it is second in degree, is expressed through mutually limiting spheres. In other words, by their very nature, they limit one another. When they run into one another, they come up against the limits of the other degree of authority. We all answer to various levels of government. I just want to illustrate this out for you. Your family is a very immediate government and source of authority. The family can decide where it's going to eat out for dinner. The family can decide what it will do for school. The family can decide where it will live, what church they will go to. There is no other authority in the derived sense, in the earthly sense, that can, de that can uh, decree for a family those decisions. Those are family decisions. We have a civil government that determines how and where roads will be built, where the dumps will exist, whether or not to do angled or uh, parallel parking. Sorry if I touch a nerve if you're a Smith Falls local. We have vocational authority. You, you answer to your boss, to your supervisor. We have societal authority. If you belong to a civic club or a bingo club, there's one bingo caller and then everyone else plays bingo. There is a source of authority in a bingo game. So we can all see these derived authorities as being relevant to our lives. These are all examples of that second degree of authority derived. Easiest way to define this is that none of these possess uncontested ultimate authority. The bingo lady cannot tell you where to work. That's easy, right? The bingo lady can't even tell you. I don't want to pick on the bingo lady, but you also can't tell her what to do. So all of these authorities are secondary and derived, and therefore they are not ultimate. They all answer to somebody else's authority. That is, none of these authorities have the power to choose or do what they will without any reference to any other realm. Isn't that true? If you want to build a deck on your house, on your property, you are subject, unfortunately, to a higher authority that will determine what your setbacks must be, what the framing material must be. Very, there, there is, our powers, our authorities are checked. They are limited. There is not any uncontested authority but one. Why do we make this distinction? Why do we want to make sure we say there is derived authority and ultimate authority? Because we don't want to be like Nebuchadnezzar. And you don't want your neighbor to be like Nebuchadnezzar. You don't want 
the mayor of this town to be like Nebuchadnezzar, where he thinks that his majesty is ultimate. There's a tragically hip song, one of my favorites, where it says, there's nothing uglier than a man hitting his stride. There's nothing uglier than a man coming into his own without any reference to a higher power. He is his own biggest deal, talking to himself on the palace wall. We don't want to be thrown like Nebuchadnezzar from the place of our prominence. We don't want to be made to live as a beast until we recognize that there is one sovereign. We want to keep our minds intact. That's why we distinguish which Nebuchadnezzar was not doing. Right? He said, my kingdom is ultimate. My kingdom is unlimited by the virtue of my own glory. And when he was released from that judgment was when he confessed that there is one sovereign. And that is that first degree of authority, ultimate authority. In other words, answers to nobody. And if you work for a big company, and I actually uh, I saw the CEO of uh, Shopify on the weekend. And he drove a really nice car. And I found out that his net worth was in the billions. And he walked by me and, and, and you know, that's, that is, that guy answers to very few people. Very few people bust into his office and say, hey, I expect this or that. But his authority is still not ultimate. It is still limited by virtue of its nature. One being is sovereign and autonomous and operates without permission or reference to any other form of authority. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11, I just want to read for you these key passages where God talks about himself. By the way, God talking about himself makes sense. Nebuchadnezzar talking about himself is silly. 46, 9 to 11 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times to things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. That's how God talks about his authority. It is unchecked. It is unsupervised. It is, in short, ultimate authority. One of my favorite Proverbs is 1921. It says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the will of the Lord that will stand. Our plans are relative to his plans. Our plans conform to his plans. God alone in this whole earth rules with total impunity. Every other dominion of authority must acknowledge his expansive dominion. Now, his dominion is expansive both in time. Nebuchadnezzar said from generation to generation to generation. His kingdom goes back to the beginning and it will extend into eternity. His dominion is expansive in time and it is expansive in space. Nebuchadnezzar said all the inhabitants of the earth are reckoned as nothing. His kingdom is not limited to the sphere of the church or limited to the area where Christians live. All inhabitants are counted as nothing. <clears throat> Scripture even demands limits upon church authority. 
1 Peter 5. We've talked about elders before. If you thought eldership was a controversial subject, wait till you deal with this in the real world and in the real church. 1 Peter 5 says, Shepherd the flock that is among you, not for sordid gain, but according to the will of God. Elders are commanded to limit and acknowledge in their authority that it is not ultimate. Elders' authority is not ultimate. It is subject to the will of God. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is limited according to the purposes of God. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Parents do not have unlimited, unchecked authority. Husbands do not have unlimited, unchecked authority. Elders do not have unlimited, unchecked authority. Every single one of these commands regarding authority and hierarchy, obedience or submission to God are critical. And they are the qualifying factor for authority on earth. If authority is outside of what God commands, it is rendered illegitimate. It is rendered illegitimate. You are free to ignore any command or teaching that I give that is outside of the word of God. Children, if your parents are asking you to commit sin, you are free in the Lord to defy them. Any dominion that does not operate, this is the point. Any dominion of authority that does not acknowledge that fact is operating in idolatry. Now, why is idolatry the sin that they're committing? Because if you believe you are the ultimate authority, that is the primary characteristic of who? God. Any authority that makes itself out to be ultimate is trying to displace what we just read in Isaiah 46. I alone am God. We are saying, well, I'm also God. No. It's idolatry. It's the first commandment violation. Idolatry is attributing to man or man's kingdom that which belongs only to God. That is idolatry. It is attributing to anything less than God that which belongs to God. Even in the simplest way we read in James, do not say tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and make this so much profit. He says, just say, tomorrow I plan on doing that if the Lord wills. You ever heard somebody say, Lord willing? That is a constant reminder that there is one sovereign and all of our plans are subject to that sovereign. We already do this with lesser forms of authority. And I want to suggest that you are already very good at standing by those mutually limiting spheres. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I don't preach on that often. It's not something I'm keen to whack over your head. But my question to you is how much authority would you allow an elder to take in your life? Would you allow, if, you, if I ask you all to submit to me your car purchase plans? I want to see your lease options before you buy your next vehicle. What about your standard of living or your location? Everyone at Evergreen Chapel must rent a home. Nobody's allowed to buy a home in this church. Is that obey your leader and submit? What about where you live? If you want to go to this church, you must live in Smith Falls. Period. Full stop. Does an elder have authority to command these things? 
I'm going to go a step further. What if an elder began evaluating what the women wore to church? Started creating a dress code. Started enforcing it and confronting people on what they wore in their outfits, particularly men evaluating women. If you're any kind of man listening to this example, I hope this is easy for you. I hope you take me behind the woodshed and at least make me defend myself. There are some overreaches of authority that are so obvious to us, it makes us awkward to talk about them. It might even make you a little bit angry thinking that I think that that's something that's legitimate. And I hope you did. I sure as heck feel awkward saying it. Some overreaches of authority are so egregious, we almost dare not even say them. What about to a woman who is being battered by her husband? Would we simply flip to Ephesians 5 and say, wives, submit to your husbands, ultimately, with no limits, with no checks and balances, with no qualifiers? What if a child is being asked by mom and dad to watch or participate in inappropriate material or activity? Children, obey your parents. Jesus said, if you cause a child to stumble, it's better that you would be drowned in the sea. There are relative limits to all forms of authority. And we recognize these. I don't have to answer any of those questions for you. You know. No, the woman doesn't submit to physical abuse. No, the child doesn't participate in sinful activity. No, the elders don't get to evaluate what my wife wears to church. No. We know that. But from our opening passage, we need to recognize that this same principle applies to the state. It applies to the civil government. And I am going to bring this to a very sharp point this morning. It applies to our civic government in the very same way. Why? Because they are, like us, participating in the realm of derived authority, secondary authority, all subject to the true sovereign. So what is the church's response in Christ to this past year? If you don't know specifically what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the way the church has been commanded by the state to do or not do certain things, and more of that is coming, but not to get into details, but how do we respond to that? The church, so this is the response of the church. We need to recognize who we are. We are the elect of God. We are given God's prophecy. We are given his word. It's prophetic instruction on life and godliness, and it rules us because of its author. You are not ruled by your church. You're not ruled by your elders. You are ruled by God himself, by virtue of this. This is why we spend a lot more time talking about this than we do talking about me or you. Because we are all just men and women. We want to hear what God says to us. So God, in Hebrews 1, says he used to speak through the prophets and in many times and ways, and now he has finally, in these last days, spoken to us in Christ. So Christ is our final word. He's our final authority. The church should be the one institution that isn't confused which authority is ultimate. We should be the one institution on this planet who is totally not confused about who is ultimately in charge. We worship by name the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. We know the King's name. There's a great psalm where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemies of your, of your uh, 
Make your enemies your footstool. There's two words for Lord that we don't recognize in our translations. One is Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. Adonai is the sovereign, is the name for sovereign or king. And uh, Peter, when he's preaching later, says, do you know what that's about? That's God the Father talking to God the Son, the King, making him sovereign over all the nations. So we shouldn't be confused about who's the King of Kings, right? We know who the King is. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said when he was being uh, examined by Pilate, you rightly say that you are a king. Pilate doesn't really get it at that point. He goes on to Jesus and says, do you not know that I have authority to release you? And what does Jesus say? Oh yeah, that is true, Romans 13. He said to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it was given to you by my Father. Your authority is secondary, Pilate. Your authority is relative to a higher authority. And the reason you're being allowed to do this to me is because God planned it. God preordained my death, my crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Jesus is sure to put Pilate in his rightful place. And as Christians, we have received Christ not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. We're going to talk about that in Romans chapter 10 in a few more weeks. We have pledged our allegiance and our obedience to the highest king. Ephesians 1.17 says, The name that is above every name that is ever named in this life or the age to come. So we come as Christians to every form of derived authority, whether it's your parents, whether it's your student council, whether it's your municipal board, whether it's the teacher's board, whether it's your MPP, your MP, your governor general, your Supreme Court, you come to every form of derived authority, secondary authority, with a view toward obedience to our ultimate authority. Jesus was once asked a trick question, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus' famous answer was, give to Caesar that which is his, and to God that which is his. So obedience to Jesus, part of the task of obedience to Christ, is evaluating what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. And we carefully sort in a, out in our lives what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? Now, Jesus didn't say, give Caesar everything he asks for, and if there's anything left, that God gets that. What was Jesus holding when he said that? If I had a real coin, that'd be so much more powerful. He was holding a coin. And by the way, it was a coin that Jesus pulled out of the mouth of a fish. Jesus is like, by the way, even this money is mine, but it's got his face on it, so give it to him. He was talking about taxes. He was talking about a coin. Rome was one of the great examples of religious, religious tolerance. One of the ways it succeeded as, a, as an empire was providing religious tolerance so they wouldn't have uprisings among factions. Because people are pretty religiously zealous, right? All you had to do was go into the local magistrate's office and register your religion, confess that Caesar was Lord, and then you would get a certificate and you would post that, a permit, at the location of your worship service. Fully certified by the state, fully approved, no danger of being persecuted. All you had to do is get permission from the state. And the church in that first century 
R.J. Rushdoony says the church denied religious toleration. They rejected that system because they denied the right of the state to say whether or not the church could exist. You don't walk into the local magistrate's office and say, hey, do you mind if I start a church in the name of Jesus Christ? You just don't do that. Never do that. Even one of the MP MPs that are running in this federal election on her Twitter said, if you elect me, I'll open your churches. No. I love the push for freedom, but no. You don't open or close the church. No man does. I don't. I don't open the church. I don't close the church. I do neither. They don't belong to me. They belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, one of the things that does not belong to Caesar is his right to choose what belongs to him. Did you catch that? One of the things that does not belong to Caesar is his right to choose what belongs to him. So that's how the church responds and lives in this world of navigating all of these secondary forms of authority. We deal with them all the time. This is my final section. Dominion in the 2021 context. This season, I, I would argue, in, in, in my view, it has brought into crystal view a direct conflict between derived authority and ultimate. We looked at in Romans 9 that God raised up Pharaoh to destroy him. He raised up Pharaoh because Pharaoh said, these people belong to me. They're my slaves. They're my economy. And Moses went back continually and said, the Lord commands you to let them go. And actually, by the way, do what? Worship. He said, let them go. And Pharaoh said, no, they're mine. That is a battle of dominion. Who gets to keep these people? Who's in charge of them? I think in the same way, the civic government has been raised up in this day as a conflict of dominion. That's mine. No, it's not mine, yours. It's my Lord's. It could be phrased like children fighting over a toy truck. It's an issue of dominion. Who has the right to claim it? When the state forbids, I don't know who said this sentence, but uh, I'm quoting it. When the state forbids what God demands or demands what God forbids, we are obligated to obey God rather than man. We saw that with James and John, or Peter and John in Jerusalem where they commanded them stop preaching Christ. And they said, whether it is right for us to obey you in your eyes is for you to determined, but as for us, we must preach Christ. In other words, he's our Lord, and in that scenario, you don't get to say that. You don't get to demand that. And so we aren't just talking about certain commands in Scripture, like Hebrews 10.24, do not neglect the gathering together, but there are multitudes of Scriptures that would individually refute uh, our freedom to, to cancel church, quote-unquote, but I don't think it says, I don't want to get into the granular argue about how scripture should be interpreted. We need to ask the larger question, who is in charge? That's the ultimate question. So when the magistrate seeks to overthrow ultimate authority by virtue of derived authority, and the church submits to it, we not only have a compromised church in terms of who is truly Lord? Who can we truly confess is Lord? Because you can say it with your mouth all you want, but lordship is proven in action. 
Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? It not only produces a compromised church, but a disordered society where derived authority has become and seized upon powers which do not belong to them. The word for that is tyranny. When derived authority seizes upon powers that belong only to God, that produces tyranny. I would say that this has run out of control primarily in Western nations because we have not had to defend against severe or harmful political overreach in generations, at least not in a way that we noticed. Joe Boot writes, what would lead a people to surrender their freedom under God for the brutal hand of a dictator? A rejection of reality, which includes one's neighbor, and an attempt to substitute a false abstraction. One's living, breathing neighbor is ignored in favor of a perverse, utopian ideal. There is, I don't think there's a phrase that better describes this past year and a half. One's living, breathing neighbor is ignored in favor of a perverse, utopian ideal. To lose sight of the sovereign law of God is to reject reality as it is, the reality of your neighbor whom the law commands you to love. The state has implemented group limits, speech limits, religious uh, gathering limits, and infringement, business closure, lawful business closure, up to one-third of them permanent, forced medical invention from masks now through to vaccines, quarantine facilities, house arrest, criminal arrest, and there is much more to come. That's not a complete list. So the state, I would argue right now, is, is taking upon themselves that which only belongs to God. That's why our forefathers we can be thankful for realized and enshrined according to God that these were things that belonged to human beings. I want to say very clearly that the only limiting force upon a tyrant is the lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot limit the overreach of the civic government or any government, whether it's family or political, without the lordship of Christ. You must provide a sovereign to limit lesser authorities. Otherwise, lesser authorities call themselves sovereign. The lordship and supremacy of Jesus Christ. This is expressed by God's people through nonconformity. I want to share a short story and some advice from Doug Wilson. He says, here is another story from the Cold War Berlin. In the late 40s, the Soviets cut off supply lines to West Berlin. In an effort to force the Allies to stop using the Deutschmark there. We responded, that is the Americans, by airlifting supplies into the city. A relief effort which continued about 15 months. That whole episode was a real embarrassment to the Soviets and they eventually lifted their blockade. But one of the things they tried to do during the showdown was to define a corridor in which all of the planes had to remain while flying to and from Berlin. The American response was to put pilots under strict orders that they were to fly anywhere but that corridor. One of the things I would encourage Christians to do wherever possible is to fly outside the corridor. Because by doing this, you deprive them of their right to their perceived authority. You reserve in your life, to whatever degree you are able, you are able to reserve for God that which belongs to him. This is both true in worship and is culturally constructive. It protects all people under God's authority. 
God's reign and authority and his ultimacy provides freedom and prosperity for people. Many of you right now are living in anguish about your job because of government overreach right now. You're wondering if your job is secure, whether or not you choose to go ahead with a medical procedure. Maybe some of you have got it. We encourage personal choice. I'm not speaking of the vaccine in itself as a moral issue. It is who's in charge? That's the question. Who's in charge of your body? Who's in charge of the church? Who's in charge of your children? My advice to you is do not give them what belongs to God. Do whatever you want to do, what your own decision has led you to do. But do not do it because they demand it. Why? Because you are giving to Caesar that which belongs to God. Scriptures say you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. Your bodies belong to God. Your philosophical exemption is as follows. I am not your slave. That's your exemption. We can talk about that more. I can give more advice on that if you want. Uh, but it's difficult, and I know that many of you are thinking about it. So as we close, what can the church do? Search the scriptures and obey them, obey them in every way that is possible. Isn't that the application of every sermon? What does the scripture say, and how can we best apply it? Evan Runner, uh, Christian philosopher, said, The Christian political task is to call a halt to the expansionist political sphere by the nature and witness of the authority of the word law and wisdom of God. Christian politics is a limiting philosophy because it limits authority that is not God. Christian politics involves the sovereignty of God. We need to think about that as we approach the election. Lucine Joseph Richard said, in the real sense, Christians must become agents of the restoration of order throughout the world. Have you ever seen a society in, in worse disarray in your, in your life? Because abandonment of the authority of God produces chaos, and obedience to God produces order and peace. Every time we concede control to an authoritarian expression of dominion, we are feeding an idol. Do you hear that? Every time you concede what belongs to God to a tyrannical authority, whether it's in your home or in the state, you are feeding an idol. An idol that produces madness. And it invites God to withdraw his restraint. Christ is our king. He is enthroned forever. He is surrounded by the elders, the saints, and the angels declaring his majesty and his dominion over all the earth. There are many unanswered questions in what I've said. I understand that. There are many ethical demands that require tough thinking and decisions. I fully acknowledge that. And, and this is not to... If there's an issue in your head that I haven't specifically addressed, and you think that I'm answering that specific issue, either in the positive or the negative, and you're getting confirmation bias right now, resist that urge. Talk it through with somebody. Don't assume that I'm speaking against some idea that you hold dear. So don't get confirmation bias and say, oh, I, don't, I, you know, I knew Tim was going to say that I don't like it, or, you know, good, Tim really you know, preached in my corner this morning. I'm trying to lay out the authority of Christ. And how that is expressed week by week in your life is, is difficult. That's the Christian job of applying the scriptures. So let's do that. Let's work together. Let's not let our emotions or our predispositions drive division. Let the truth drive division if it must. But let's come around the truth of the word and reason together as to how to obey this together. And uh, I pray that Christ is exalted 
in the nations. So let me close in prayer and we'll close with a song.